Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Welcome to the Hay Festival. Um, thank you for coming out in the drizzle for this event, which is one of the series we have in association with Cambridge University. Please give a very warm welcome to Nicole Soranzo. Thank you really very much for coming. It's, it's the greatest honor to be speaking on this stage today. I'm very used to giving scientific presentations, not so much uh, presentation uh, to a broader public. Um, so I do hope that what I want to tell you today um, will make sense to you. So I'm a human geneticist. I have actually two jobs. One is in an institution up here called the Sanger Institute, which is the biggest genome research institute in Europe. Um, and this institute really does large-scale uh, uh, science, mostly based on the analysis of DNA sequence variation. Uh, I also have a second job at the University of Cambridge in the School of Clinical Medicine. And what my group has been doing together with many, many colleagues has been in the last uh, 15 years to try uh, and understand how uh, DNA information can uh, be used uh, to uh, inform understanding of uh, human uh, traits, uh, so characteristics of humans, but also human diseases. Um, and so uh, what I would like to do today um, um, is, is to take you on a journey to s show you how we're using analysis of DNA sequence variation to tackle some of the big challenges in human health. Uh, what I would like you to take home uh, from this talk are some key messages. Uh, the first is uh, hopefully that you will understand how DNA sequencing uh, is really playing a profound influence on healthcare, uh, on society, and our understanding of the basic uh, facts of biology at large. And I will give you uh, indeed examples of how we apply uh, DNA sequence variation to understand uh, both rare and common disease. Uh, and I'll t explain later what they are. Uh, we have um, uh, indeed experiencing uh, a, a period of huge, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented uh, pace of discoveries uh, following the Human Genome Project, and this is really driven by faster technological information. Um, I also want to show you that the UK is indeed a powerhouse of this type of research. We're really leading the way, not in, only in terms of uh, the science that we do, but also the resources that we put out for the uh, global community. Uh, and also, I want to show you, and perhaps this can be left more for discussion later, how, uh, although, of course, DNA sequencing is, is great, there are also complexities in both its interpretation and also the uh, implementation of DNA sequencing analysis. Uh, so I um, just want to give a, 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 a few brief facts before we move on. Um, so underpinning all of what we do is really genetics, which is uh, the study of inheritance. And, and, and genetics is really the reason why uh, children look predominantly like uh, uh, their parents. And just as a way of illustration in this slide here is a slide uh, of a family. The father has a horizontal striped t-shirt and the mother a vertical <laughs> striped t-shirt. Uh, and uh, the child is a perfect blend of characteristics of both uh, uh, parents. So this is a simplified uh, example, but it's really what genetics is about, about the fact that the characteristics of mothers and fathers uh, uh, interact uh, together with uh, uh, other things that I will talk about a little bit later. 
And so just to think that, uh, like the analogy of the T-shirt, really nearly every human uh, characteristics and nearly all medical conditions have at least a partial genetic basis. It can be quite confusing, but uh, a characteristic like height, your weight, your skin color, your hair color, whether you're left-handed or right-handed, whether you like a broccoli or not, they are all at least in part determined by genetics. This is true. Uh, and also, uh, uh, more sadly, also many uh, diseases have a strong genetic component. So diseases like uh, uh, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, the biggest killers. Uh, there, cancer has a strong genetic and inherited component. And neuropsychiatric uh, conditions, such as the depression or schizophrenia or, uh, or autism, uh, susceptibility to infection, uh, autoimmune disease, you name it. Their genetic uh, understanding, uh, uh, underpinning to many of these. Uh, and, uh, so far, it's, quite, it's, it's been difficult to study, but it, it nevertheless exists. So we, we have known about uh, uh, the rules of genetics well before we really understood how genetics worked. Uh, and this is just a by way of illustration. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, the, the, the pointer doesn't work. Uh, do you have another pointer, please? Excuse me. Oh. Okay, we'll do without a pointer. Uh, on the left-hand side uh, uh, is a plot uh, that was uh, produced back in 1885 by Sir Francis Galton. Uh, the, uh, and already the intuition to observe that, on average, the height of children is very highly correlated to the average height uh, of their parents. Uh, and this is indeed due to genetic inheritance. Uh, we also learned a lot about genetics from uh, twin studies. And as you see on the right-hand side pictures, uh, twins that are called monozygotic or identical twins, they share 100% of their genetic uh, as well as the environment. They tend to have overwhelmingly similar physical characteristics, so not only height, but weight uh, and the shape of the body, and much more so that uh, indeed uh, uh, twins that share only 50% uh, of their genome, so-called fraternal uh, twins. Uh, however, uh, uh, you know, moving beyond this, what really has revolutionized our ability to study genetics has been uh, a very landmark project, which is called the Human Genome Project. And I'm sure uh, many of you uh, know exactly what this is. So this was really, uh, uh, this was really uh, I think, one of the biggest uh, achievements, uh, I think, of humankind, certainly in biomedical research. Uh, it was a project that started somewhere in, in the late 80s to early 90s by a group of really visionary scientists uh, that decided that uh, DNA sequencing technology was sufficiently mature that they could attempt uh, to sequence uh, to sequence the genome of a, a, a reference individual uh, in its complexity. And I can't stress enough that at the time, actually, DNA sequencing technology was very, very rudimentary, certainly uh, compared to common uh, present day, uh, and indeed uh, uh, very, very much a manual labor uh, of love. So there were over um, many hundreds of scientists from all over the world, both from the US, Japan, France, Germany, China, and the UK that contributed to this effort. It was predicted it would take about 13 years. I ended up uh, delivering uh, uh, two years ahead of schedule, so in 13 years, uh, a full reference uh, uh, draft of the human genome. And this was uh, uh, nearly exactly 16 years today. Uh, and this is the institute where I work. Uh, I, uh, and in, in its early days, indeed, it was a shipping company. Uh, and I can tell you how rudimentary the conditions of work were at the time compared to now. 
Uh, and as I said, UK have played a really important part in this project. Uh, we uh, sequenced about one third of the genome uh, uh, ourselves. I was not uh, uh, a scientist yet at the time. Uh, but, uh, and indeed, uh, the Sanger Institute played the single biggest uh, contribution by an institute uh, in the whole project. So what is a human genome? So human genome is simply the collection of all the genetic material in an organism. So it is made of DNA, and each cell of the body contains about two meters of DNA that is tightly packed to fit in a cell uh, in, a, in what we call chromosomes. And so there are uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes. Uh, can you tell me if this is a chromosome of male or a female? Yeah. So it's a male as an X and Y chromosome, so 22 pairs of chromosome, uh, one inherited from the mother, one inherited from the father, and, uh, father, and one sex, uh, a pair of sex-determinate uh, chromosomes. And so, as I said, uh, genomes uh, is made of DNA. Uh, DNA is made of four letters. And if you were to, uh, there are about three billion letters for each copy of the genome that you inherit from each parent. And if you were to print it as a, as a, as a book, uh, given we are here in Hay, uh, that would, you know, there, uh, you take, if you t print it in a book of about over 1,000 pages, it would take over 115 books uh, to just uh, contain uh, the text of the single uh, sequence. Of the, uh, uh, of the human genome. So this is a lot, a lot of information. So what does a genome does? In a very simplified way, if you zoom in, you will see that uh, the genome simply uh, contains the information uh, that is required to produce what we call proteins. So you're thinking of proteins as the protein that you eat in your diet, but there are actually many, many different types of proteins that really underpin every single biological function. So there are proteins called transporters that, uh, for instance, transport uh, the, the sugar in your, uh, from your blood into, into your organs. Uh, there are uh, proteins such as uh, enzymes that break down the fats after you eat a, a, a burger. There are proteins that control the transmission of signal uh, inside your brain. So every single biological function uh, is affected by, uh, by protein, and, and, and the gene simply uh, controls for that. So changes in the DNA that affect in some way either the structure or the function of this protein can result in a change uh, in a person. So as I said, uh, the genome gave us really incredible insight into uh, what uh, uh, the genome project, into what the genome looks like, what are these genes and these proteins. But it also, as, as it often happens in science, really fostered uh, an incredible wave of technological development, uh, what we call a DNA sequencing revolution. Uh, and this really culminated in 2007 with the advent of a completely different way of sequencing the genome, uh, away from this very rudimentary one that I told you before. Um, and uh, uh, one of the results has often happened in technology is that the cost and the, uh, the, of the technology goes down a lot, uh, and the throughput goes out a lot. And so here we are showing the cost of sequencing a single genome uh, in the years just from just before the genome project all the way to not even uh, this day. And as you've seen, the cost for a single genome went from uh, over 100 million pounds uh, all the way to less than 1,000 pounds today. So what, what this means is that we're now able to sequence genomes much, much uh, faster than we were able to do it before, and we can afford to do so. 
And so uh, the first genome, uh, as you see, happened uh, up in 2003. Uh, by uh, the age of 2008, 2009, we were already thinking of sequencing thousands of genomes. Uh, in 2012, there were tens of thousands, and now we are routinely sequencing hundreds of thousands of genomes. Um, and uh, for those of you that, uh, that know that uh, the Moore's law is the more that uh, has been predicted to uh, that, that claims that super con uh, microchips uh, increase capacity uh, in uh, uh, double their capacity every two years, uh, and indeed the, the sequencing technology is evolving faster uh, than uh, the Moore's law. And so as we started to sequence more and more genomes, we came to appreciate that the genomes are not all the same. And of course, we knew that a little bit before, but we now really understand uh, the full extent of it. And so if you take uh, the full extent of uh, uh, one copy of this chromosome, so we'll call uh, the three billion letters, uh, we know that on average, every two persons in this room will have about 99.9% of their cited are completely identical. Uh, but there are about three, four million uh, bases that vary between people on average. And they're not all the same, these changes. There are changes that are very small. So for instance, they could be the change of a single letter to a different letter. Uh, uh, a little bit bigger, so for instance, the changes of uh, one letter into three or four letters, uh, small changes like that. Or they can be actually much bigger changes. So for instance, uh, you could have the entire regions of a chromosome are either uh, missing or uh, duplicated, uh, or indeed entire chromosomes. And very roughly, as a rule of thumb, uh, the, more, uh, the smaller the changes, the less likely they, they are to have a, an impact on, on biology. Uh, and the, the bigger the changes, the more they are. But this is really a rule of thumb. There are a lot of subtleties around that. So, uh, so how, do, how can you use now this information that the human genome and this technology that the human genome has given us to uh, begin to understand and study better about diseases? And so, as I said, I wanted to talk about two different types uh, of uh, classes of diseases. Uh, the first one is a rare disease, uh, and, uh, uh, and indeed are uh, perhaps the, the diseases that people think about more when they think about uh, genetics. Um, so this is uh, an example of a rare disease. Uh, this is the occurrence of a disease called hemophilia, which is a severe clotting disorder uh, in the royal family. Uh, and it was thought, uh, uh, so this, uh, this person at the top uh, with the two colors is indeed Queen Victoria, uh, and these are their descendants. And on the left-hand side is the current British royal family. Uh, in the middle is the, uh, is, is the Russian royal family. And so, so uh, in this case, what, what People, scientists thought it happened is that uh, a new mutation on the X chromosome uh, of a gene called factor nine in Queen Victoria. So this happened at conception, so uh, in, uh, um, in, uh, before she was born, uh, happened, and this mutation uh, leads to a defect in clotting. So because this mutation is on the X chromosome, uh, uh, Queen Victoria is a woman, has two copies of the X chromosome. One is faulty, the other is, is okay, uh, and indeed uh, this leads a person to be uh, healthy in this case. 
However, if, if the gene is carried down to the generation, particularly to males that have only one copy of the X chromosome, uh, when, when, when they carry the faulty copy of the gene, uh, this can lead to disease. And this is really the typical way in which we've been thinking and studying disease for a long time. And, so for, and this was recently shown, the square at the bottom uh, is Prince Alexei, which was uh, the, uh, the son of uh, uh, Prince Nicholas II of Prussia. Uh, uh, his bones were found quite recently uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Siberia, the DNA was sequenced from these bones, and they found that indeed he was a carrier of this mutation. So rare diseases behave generally like this. Uh, they are, uh, have characteristics of being uh, extremely rare. They affect less than one in 2,000. But indeed, in, in some cases, they can be extreme, so rare that they are carried only in one or few people in a population. But there are many of them. There are over 8,000 known diseases. Uh, and indeed, many, and every week, there's more discoveries. Uh, and so overall, there's a large number of people affected, over 3.5 million in the UK and about 30 million uh, in, in Europe. So as, as shown in the example of uh, uh, Queen Victoria, uh, rare, uh, rare diseases are typically caused by single gene mutation. This is not always the case, but this is often the case. Uh, and as I said before, this mutation can either be inherited from one of the parents or both, or indeed can be generated at conception. Uh, and uh, if you have, uh, in some cases, like uh, uh, um, in some cases, you need two copies uh, of this mutation to, uh, to have a disease. In some cases, you'd need only one. So now with the enhanced uh, power of DNA sequencing, we can begin to really uh, try and uh, use genetics to uh, uh, provide genetic diagnosis to uh, patients that suffer from rare diseases. And so this is one of the actually first large-scale studies that were uh, carried out in the UK. This is a work of my colleague Matt Hulse and many other colleagues. Uh, so they set up a, a UK-wide collaboration that included uh, patients, their families, uh, all the NHS genetic services in the UK, uh, as well as our institute. So the collaboration included over 24 centers and involved uh, over 200 clinicians. And so uh, the, point, the, the purpose here was to uh, use DNA sequencing to attempt to provide genetic diagnosis to children uh, that were uh, diagnosed as having uh, signs of potentially having a developmental disorder, uh, and that would include children with intellectual disability, uh, often with seizures, with potentially abnormal uh, brain MRI, or, or in some limited amount of cases, autistic uh, features. And really, uh, the point here is to be able to provide the parents with an understanding about how these uh, diseases occur. And so um, um, the strategy that was used is that the DNA of the child was sequenced, uh, and also the DNA of the parents were sequenced. And there were about 13,000 patients enrolled in this study. So as I told you, there are millions of variants that change between people. It's very, very difficult to zoom into the one change that is responsible for disease. So it's like looking for a needle in a haystack where the needle is really, really, really tight. So what clinicians did is to really leverage the power of this UK-wide collaboration to improve the chances of finding the disease. Um, and I want to show you just a little video, if, if technology doesn't let me down, uh, which I, th I think is a beautiful testament to how the project worked. 
So it's not uh, uh, showing. Uh, could you? No, it's not working. Uh, no, it's not showing it. Okay. I'm going blindly. Okay, so it never works with technology. It has felt like you've been for the whole nine years that we've just been on our own, that there's no one else out there. Okay, it was working before. It has felt like we've been, for the whole nine years that we've just been on our own, that there's no one else out there. Okay, so as, as often happens, uh, so what, what I, I would suggest is that you go home and watch this video, <laughs> um, which is a really beautiful testament of, uh, you know, of the power and the value of this type of approach. So I'll give you the uh, personal narration of this, which is that uh, uh, these two children look like twins, or siblings at least, but they are not related at all. They carry uh, a, a mutation in the same gene called CDK13, and this mutation leads to uh, uh, the children having very similar uh, features, so both physical, as you see, but also uh, uh, potentially behavioral. And so what a clinician did in this study uh, is to go around the, the UK uh, through their network of collaboration and uh, gather characteristics uh, of, of, of all the children that were enrolled in the study uh, across the UK and compare notes. Because these diseases, as I said, are so rare. And so what will happen is that in this case, they found, for instance, three cases uh, of, uh, so three children with the, with the same mutation in, in this particular gene. Uh, there were indeed one in Cornwall and two uh, in the north of England. And it's really the power of bringing together national, regional centers and comparing uh, information such as characteristic uh, that uh, uh, was uh, fundamental for the success of this project. Uh, and so out of the uh, 13,000 13, families that enroll, about 30%, uh, uh, 35 received the genetic diagnosis. And this for the, the parents and the children received, it was really uh, life changes, uh, changing. So in 75% of the cases, uh, the scientists were able to show that uh, uh, the mutation that led to this uh, particular uh, um, uh, change in the, in the child was uh, not inherited by parents, but was indeed a new mutation, as in the case of Queen Victoria. And this obviously has import important implication in terms of how parents, uh, for instance, plan families and having a second child. So uh, there's now an extension of this that also looks at children uh, that uh, carry uh, potential uh, abnormalities, uh, uh, as shown from fetal scans, for instance, uh, congenital, uh, uh, congenital structure, uh, uh, changes in the heart. And then in this case, out of 610 uh, developing babies, uh, they underwent DNA sequencing about 10 per, for about 10%, uh, scientists were able to discover a genetic uh, 
large contribution. So the, these changes have really been so powerful in terms of you know, uh, understanding human uh, conditions that uh, this led in 2017 the chief medical officer of the UK, Dame uh, Sally Davis, to really say that uh, DNA sequencing should become part uh, uh, of standard clinical care, at least uh, for, uh, for rare diseases. And, and this led uh, an announcement of David Cameron that uh, put a, 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 a big amount of funding into uh, a project called the 100,000 Genome Project, uh, which is a project that has now looked at over 100,000 uh, patients with either rare disorders or cancers uh, to attempt uh, to uh, bring a genetic diagnosis all the way into clinical care. And this is, uh, this is really, uh, I, I, I can't stress how uh, breakthrough this type of approach is uh, compared to what is the standard uh, of practice in the rest of the world. So I'd like to move now, switch gears a little bit to talk about the, an, another classes uh, of uh, diseases which are called the common diseases. So common diseases are, by definition, very common. Um, so this is uh, a list of the 10 top causes of death globally in uh, 2016, according to the World Health Organization. Uh, and among them, you see that ischemic heart disease uh, is responsible for that of nearly 10 million people worldwide uh, every year. In stroke is about 6 million. Uh, cro uh, coronary, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, as uh, uh, another 2.5, 3 million, uh, and, and so on. So these diseases are very common, and, 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 and why they are uh, a priority for, uh, for science is not only that they are common, but that uh, the rate of these diseases is really growing very rapidly. And this is due to, obviously, uh, an ov overall aging of the population, but also changes in environment. For instance, uh, the lack of physical activity or uh, reliance on more uh, rich diets. So, uh, as I told you before, rare diseases are typically caused by mutation in a single gene, so the single gene uh, diseases. Uh, common diseases are a lot more complex. So, uh, indeed, uh, uh, every disease that we know about now has at least hundreds uh, of genetic changes uh, that contribute to that given disease. Uh, so, for instance, in heart attacks, there are many hundreds of changes uh, that confer your risk for heart attack. And while in rare disease, one change gave you uh, a very strong uh, manifestation in most cases, in the case of common diseases, this is not the case. Each, uh, each DNA change uh, changes your risk by very, very little, uh, maybe 0.1% increase in risk overall. Uh, the other complication of of a common diseases, and it's why we all often call them complex diseases, is that it's not only a contribution of genetics, but also a contribution of the environment, or we call nurture. Uh, and in this case, you know, environments that we know affect uh, uh, risk of disease uh, are, for instance, diet, uh, alcohol consumption, levels of exercise, stress, uh, UV light, uh, but indeed also things you might not think about, like pregnancy. For instance, pregnancy is associated with a, a huge decrease uh, of autoimmune diseases during the time of pregnancy. 
Um, so over the course of uh, the last 15 years, again, after the sequencing of the human genome, um, uh, we have seen a huge increase in understanding of the genetic contribution to common diseases. And so this I'm just plotting. Uh, what was the situation in 2005? So this was uh, the human genome, all the chromosomes, and we uh, found the first genetic variant that confers risk to a common disease. In this case, uh, the disease was uh, advanced macular degeneration, which is a condition that causes blindness in old age. Uh, and as we zoom in, in 2006, uh, thank you, thanks to the information that we got from the human genome, we were able to feel very rapidly uh, our, our understanding of a predisposing factor to common disease. So we now have tens of thousands of genetic variants in the genome that you, we know are common in the population, and we know that they contribute risk, uh, to risk of disease. So as I said, common diseases are influenced by hundreds of genetic variants with tiny effects and also by the environment. How does this work? So I want to give you an example uh, using uh, actually a trait, which is height, just to continue uh, with, uh, with the examples that we showed before. Um, so in this case, and uh, bear with me if this gets a bit confusing, but so this is, this is uh, a photo that was taken in 1914 for students at the Connecticut State Agriculture uh, College in, in the States. So uh, all the students, uh, uh, were, uh, were ranked by, uh, by their height, uh, so by the stature, and then they were put behind a, pl a placard that uh, uh, says how tall this, uh, this uh, person was. And so you see in the middle of the distribution, the majority uh, of students were somewhat of average uh, height, so they were between 5'6 and 5'8 uh, uh, feet uh, uh, of uh, of height, and then at the uh, right-hand side, there were a, f a smaller number uh, of students that was very tall, uh, and at the other side, a smaller number of students that were really short. So this is really actually what happens in the majority of human uh, uh, characteristics. So for instance, uh, your, 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 your uh, bad cholesterol or your, the level of sugar in your blood, they all, the, your BMI levels, they all work the same. And so what's happened is that uh, all these hundreds of genetic variants that, that individually increase the risk of height uh, are um, distributed differently. So indeed, what, what we now know is that uh, uh, the majority of people in the middle of the distribution have uh, an average number of height increasing genetic variants. At the right hand side are uh, people that have won the height lottery, so they have many more height increasing variants. Uh, and then the left hand side are people that have many uh, fewer height increasing variants. So what about the environment here? So if you, if you uh, uh, remarkably, the same college took another photo of students about 80 years down the line. And so what you see, first of all, is that uh, they now admit female students, and this is the, the, the person in white, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, but if you look at the distribution, you see that they are actually very similar. Uh, for instance, for males in black, uh, many, many, many males have average height, and then there are uh, fewer at the extremes. However, if you line up these photos, what you will see is that uh, actually the distribution of height in this sample has changed. So uh, whereas before the shortest person was 4.1, uh, now is 5.4, and the tallest was 6.2, and now is 6.5. So the whole population has shifted by about uh, two inches to the right. 
And this is because, on average, uh, nowadays we have better nutrition, and this uh, increases uh, height overall in the population. So this is what we call the environment. So genetics determines distribu distribution, and, uh, and environment adds to that. As I said, this is an example for height, but indeed many, many of our characteristics work exactly the same way. Uh, if you take LDL cholesterol, there will be a genetic distribu determined distribution, and then depending on how much you eat, it will move you a little bit more on the left. But on average, the population is moving towards the right. So we have done, again, a lot of work. Trying, you know, we are really uh, now understanding better how about, about how to study uh, these genetic effects and these environmental effects. And this is, again, uh, due to landmark studies that are happening in the UK as well as everywhere else. Uh, and there's a chance that in this room there are several people that participated to this study called uh, UK Biobank. Uh, if you are, I really would like to thank you to the bottom from, your, from my heart because it's been really transformational for how I study genetics. So this is a project that enrolled about 15, 20 years ago. Half a million uh, participants from all over the UK, uh, on average middle age, but with a good uh, age distribution. And, 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 and these healthy volunteers or volunteers agreed to a fairly painstaking process of donating uh, um, detailed uh, well, biological samples to get information such as uh, bio, uh, bio, detailed biological characteristics such as height and weight and BMI, uh, but also uh, your levels of cholesterol in your blood or sugar in your blood. Uh, they responded to detailed questionnaire data uh, that uh, included uh, data on lifestyle, for instance, uh, eating habits or exercise habits and mental health, uh, and also provided DNA to obtain a detailed genetic information. And so not only us in the UK, but actually all over the world, scientists are working on this data. And there are now uh, hundreds and hundreds of papers published uh, using data from the UK Biobank. It's really been hailed as uh, you know, the landmark study. And I just want to show you a few examples of the kind of things we are learning. This is a study that was published by the Egg Consortium earlier this month uh, that looked at how genetics influences uh, uh, the birth, uh, the, the, the weight of babies at birth, and showed that there is a genetic effect from the DNA of the baby, similar to what I said before, it controls size, but also a genetic effect for the uh, genes of the mothers that are not transferred uh, to the baby, simply because this, the gene of the mother uh, control uterus environment and that in turn affects uh, the weight of the baby. So uh, another study. Uh, is, uh, is this one, uh, which, uh, uh, and the many, many, and you can go and look at them. Uh, so in this case, you know, I think in, in, if you read the newspaper, there's always a lot of confusion about whether a, a glass of wine a day is good for you or it's not good for you, or maybe a glass and a half, maybe half a glass, and, and there's a lot of confusion. And part of that is that because we've been doing these studies uh, in extremely uh, unsuitable samples, so with very small numbers of participants, and the number of participants really determine how robust the findings of this study are. 
So now we have half a million people where we can look at all these uh, correlation and effects much more carefully. And indeed, we can also understand whether some of these correlations uh, are causal or, or, or not. And so this is one example uh, that shows that uh, yeah, even if you are a moderate meat eater within the range uh, described by uh, the, uh, currently the, the, the UK government, you have a slightly increased risk of developing bowel cancer. So as, as we progress, we'll be able to have much, much clearer indication of really how uh, our environment, such as diet, really affects our risk of disease. This is another example that shows that uh, the uh, genetics and genetic predisposition uh, really informs, um, uh, so, so it's really well known that uh, there are links between heart disease and depression. Uh, and, and so this study looks uh, at the fact that inflammation is a process, a biological process that really has links with both. And, and what is important is as we are beginning to tease apart all these biological and genetic and environmental components, we're also becoming better understanding what are these uh, observed correlations that really uh, uh, indicate a causal effect. And why this is important is because if there is a causal effect, we can develop an intervention. And I know this is uh, vague, but just to give you an example, uh, so in this case, uh, uh, the authors show that uh, um, uh, the level of lipids in your blood that we know is correlated with the heart attack uh, is also potentially correlated with uh, motor neuron disease and indeed the le level of damage and uh, motor neuron disease. And so statins are currently used to, to prevent heart attacks by lowering the level of uh, bad cholesterol in your blood. And so this raises an important uh, uh, intri intriguing observation that indeed statins could potentially also be used um, with uh, treat motor neuron uh, disease in effect. So this is just an hypothesis at the time that we will need clinical trials to really understand whether this is hypothesis supported. Uh, but uh, um, we're now at the stage where uh, there is increasing realization that genetics really help uh, make a, a better uh, hypothesis about the things that we might want to treat in the future. So I want to touch on you know, some of the ways we're using genetics now. So one is a, a, a really... Uh, uh, that we are using genetics to transform drug development. Um, so if you look at a drug development pipeline, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to put a, a drug on the market. And one of the reasons for that is that the cycle of producing a drug is really long. So you start from uh, many, many different compounds and you take them through different stages uh, that last a really long time, a lot of experimental studies and then st studies in humans. And uh, typically out of many uh, drugs that are tested at the beginning of, of this pipeline, very few and make it into the market. And this is partly why drugs uh, are so expensive, not the only reason, but partly why. So it's been really now shown very clearly that if you have a genetic evidence that links a drug to a disease, uh, the rates of success for that particular drug becomes double. So we can use now genetics to really uh, uh, inform which drugs we should be uh, developing. And so this is, this is as a number of applications. First of all, we're using this to discover new drugs. As we understand more about the biology of diseases, we find the genes, and we think that we can perhaps modulate the activity of these genes to create new drugs. 
Uh, but importantly, we can also think of repurposing all drugs for new indication. So as in the case of the statins and motor neuron disease, we have a drug that we know works really well for an indication, but the gene that the drug, the, the, the gene is correlated also with another disease, and so we can think of treating the other disease uh, with the same drug. Um, and there are examples that this is working. And finally, understanding how genetic influences uh, uh, your drug uptake and also determine the optimal dose of a drug. So there are now many efforts, and pharma companies are fully engaged with basic scientists to really try and harness uh, the power of genetic analysis for drug development. So the other big, so as I said, the other big problem in common disease is predicting, based on genetics, who will go on and develop a disease and who will not. And there was a quite recently quite a controversial uh, number of articles following uh, a statement by uh, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, uh, who uh, basically claimed that he had done a genetic test and found that his overall risk for uh, prostate cancer was 15%. Um, and this was on the back uh, of the... Um, uh, so a genetic test, uh, and he did said uh, this genetic testing saved my life because I know I found out that I have uh, a higher risk of disease. So if you look well into what he said, so he has a risk of 15% against a background genetic risk for a man of his age and his uh, typical uh, age and lifestyle that is 12%. So the increase in risk was really quite minimal, predicted by genetics. And so you think, is this enough to actually uh, begin to have intervention? Probably not. So uh, you know, this is a relationship between uh, the prevalence of heart disease and uh, the genetic risk uh, for heart disease. So what genetics tell you will be your risk of heart disease. And so the, the relationship is pretty much like that. And so what you see is that, as in the case of Matanko, for the middle of, uh, for the majority of people that sit in this genetic risk, uh, the risk is pretty much the same, very, very little difference. So as I've shown you before, the majority of people uh, in the height distribution were in the middle, where you have an average height. And this is the same for disease. For the majority of people, you have, due to genetic, a pretty much an average risk. However, if you are at the very extreme of this risk, so if you are one of these persons that have won or lost the genetic lottery, depending on how you, you think about it, uh, actually there is a very big difference in risk. So if it's, if it's only for these people that indeed uh, an intervention is warranted because there is a real chance uh, of, of making a difference. So this is just to say that this is really complicated. There's a lot of work in trying to understand how this uh, genetic risk can be applied in clinical care. Uh, but just beware that there are many tests out there that are proposed to uh, be able to change your life based on genetics. Uh, and indeed, there's one now shown that you, that you can book your uh, holidays on Airbnb based on your genetic background. <laughs> So most of these really have to be interpreted with a lot of caution. Uh, and uh, the risk is that if, uh, uh, if this direct-to-consumer uh, uh, direct genetic testing becomes very widespread, this will result in, 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 in an increased, uh, if you want, burden or, or, or work for the NHS in trying to tease apart cases where genetics really does make a difference. Um, so I just wanted to conclude by really emphasizing that uh, uh, not many people appreciate what big uh, component of the UK's and, and world economy uh, life sciences are, and here we include pharma, but also discovery, and all the, uh, the kind of work that I told you about uh, uh, today. 
So uh, indeed, uh, uh, the life sciences generates sector in, in, in the UK generates about 64 billion pounds uh, of turnover, employs over 200,000 people, uh, many like me uh, coming from abroad. Uh, it, uh, it is an industry that is growing. It's expected to grow at a staggering pace so that uh, as and out of this, just the genome-related technologies that I told you before and the ana data analysis account for over 60 million uh, a billion pounds. So um, this is a time to invest, but also to work uh, to rehab uh, the, the economic as well as health benefits uh, of genomic research. Okay, so to conclude, I just want to recap what we talked about today. So I told you that we, we indeed are experiencing a stage of really exponentially increasing volumes uh, of data from living organisms, including humans. Uh, this has really uh, been transformational for the prospect of diagnosing the genetic causes of many rare diseases, and it is now fully embedded within NHS uh, strategy. Uh, um, in, in common disease, it's not a matter so much of diagnosing patients, but rather to understanding uh, the genetic causes and the diversity uh, of genetic causes in different people, uh, and we're really making uh, in, uh, a tremendous progress in this sense as well. Uh, this information is used now for uh, beginning to develop new uh, drugs and begin to tailor treatments uh, for, for people, uh, informing the management of health. Uh, bio, as I said, bio, uh, biosciences uh, really also has played an important part in fostering uh, business in the UK. So if you're interested in looking more, there is a website uh, set up by my institute. It is a public engagement website that will give you a lot of more information about uh, the kind of studies that I told you uh, about uh, today. So really, I would like to thank you for your attention. It's been really a pleasure, and I'm very happy to take any questions or comments. Thank you. A question down there? Yes. Yes, uh, there's. <laughs> so that we'll take one here. For okay. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Um, oh, um, sorry. When and where do the insurance companies uh, get into this picture? <sighs> Okay, I was expecting this question. This <laughs> it's hard, you know, it's really hard. And I think, uh, um, so my, you know, I, I guess in this sense, the United States lead the way because they've been, uh, been you know, more in insurance space for a long time. Um, so I think what we're trying to do is really educate uh, uh, the, the insurance companies and you know the community at large of really how actually poor predictors this, some of these genetic tests are. So you know the whole principle of insurance is based that you know you have a, a predisposing variant that accounts in a way as a, a pre-existing condition. 
And actually, for the majority, at least of common diseases, this is not the case. So genetic doesn't really tell you anything that you don't know from measuring your blood cholesterol. And so part of that is, uh, you know, I think developing a regulatory framework that protect uh, consumers, and this is happening in the States with the GINA Act that made it illegal to, uh, to have a discrimination based on your genetic makeup. Um, so it's always a, a matter of, you know, we think that obviously the benefits of genetics are, are huge, and the question is managing the risk by really engaging with stakeholders. So not myself, but many of my colleagues are really active at government level and uh, to, really big, uh, to really shape how we think about uh, genetics as a society. There's a question there. Yeah. Oh, yes, um, I just wanted, first of all, to thank you. As a non-scientist, I found it very accessible in your talk today. Thank um, you. I, I want to ask, uh, obviously a great deal of this work depends on collaboration, not just in the UK with the, with the NHS, but across the board. And I want to raise the, the B word, the Brexit word. What effect is that, if it happens, going to have on what you do? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you guys are not letting me off uh, <laughs> easily. Um, it's a huge, hugely hotly debated uh, you know, issue in our community. Um, so I think it's fair to say that overwhelmingly the scientific community is aware of the benefit of uh, a movement of people and knowledge as well as knowledge. Uh, and we do feel very strongly that stopping a movement of people or, or putting barriers is going to be extremely detrimental to uh, to science, and this is, you know, and it can be anything from importing a postdoc to work in my group to have been able to attend a conference at the last minute. You know, there's a lot of facets to that. Um, so, scientific community is overwhelmingly aware of that. Um, there's a lot of work actually going on at the government and, and well, the happier years of science and government is really uh, uh, also trying to prepare for an event, uh, you know, an event of Brexit. And part of you know, the, the ex ex extensive funding that has been put in, 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 in UK science has been really that, to prevent, make sure that we, you know, even in the case we lose access to European grants, we can still do the research we need to do. And there's obviously a, a benefit, you know, economic benefit, a clear economic benefit. So I personally hopefully uh, hope that as scientists will be able to be protected, so whatever happens with Brexit, so we'll be able to continue to move our people and our ideas and, and, and collaborate freely. Uh, and I would, I would hope that everybody understand that uh, preventing that will be really to the uh, um, detriment of everybody. So I was just wondering what your view was on how close we are to treating single gene disorders such as Huntington's by using gene editing, specifically with the use of CRISPR-Cas9 as like a more day-to-day -day treatment. Yeah, so gene editing is... Um uh, so this, the, the, there's a story of a, a, a drug that was put on the market, I think, uh, um, this week, and I don't remember. The, 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 the tag price uh, uh, was astronomical, but actually... 
So you know, uh, these diseases are rare, but for the person that have them, they are really very, 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 very life-changing, right? And so being able to find the treatment or uh, you know a way to ameliorate it, uh, it's very important. And I think the discussion here needs to happen at the level of uh, you know uh, even for drugs that cost a lot of money to develop and potentially many years, you're facing you're comparing that towards the cost, both the human cost of the disease, but also the cost of the life lifetime cost to healthcare in, in assisting uh, patients and their families. So for me, any, any, uh, any, any type of treatment that we can do, to, that we can put in place to ameliorate, uh, ameliorate the disease is going to be extremely important. And, uh, and obviously, uh, it's always a push to, uh, to push pharma companies that don't see a big market to develop these drugs. But for the people that need them, they are really uh, hugely transformational. Oh, okay, here, sorry. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about genetics and schizophrenia and the current state of research into that and whether you're looking for one particular gene or whether it's a, a whole cluster of genes that you're yeah. finding. So um, I, I'm not an expert in schizophrenia, uh, but like any other common disease, there is a lot of work being put to understand and unravel the causes of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is very similar to many of the other complex diseases in that we now know that there's a clear multifactorial component, so there are many different genetic variants that contribute. Uh, but it's really a spectrum. Um, so I think it, compared to, uh, so macular degeneration, as I've shown you, is the first uh, genetic variants that we discover for common disease. And in that case, actually, there are very, overall very few of these variants. For schizophrenia, there is the other end of the spectrum. There are many, 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 many variants that control, uh, um, uh, control risk. And, and in often cases, they're not just individual variants, but it's really how many of you you accumulate. Um, um, there's a, a psychiatric genomic consortium that is incredibly active worldwide and has made inroads into understanding the genetic basis of, uh, of schizophrenia. So one of the, uh, the studies that was published quite a couple of years ago was a really landmark study that showed that uh, there is a, a bit of biology that at the point where your neurons in your brain connect, uh, that is uh, where we can show that is actually, that's actually uh, a, a, a change in the, in the connectivity between neurons that is observed more frequency in, uh, in the schizophrenic uh, patients versus known schizophrenic controls. Um, so yes, yeah, a lot of progress, many genetic variants, a lot of biology that we don't understand yet. Um, there's, um, we hear a lot about antimicrobial drugs becoming less effective. What's the role of genomics in developing new drugs? Yeah, so uh, the, as you would expect, I will say the role of genomics is very important, <laughs> uh, but it is. Um, so, um, so yes, so, so uh, response to how, how we respond to bacterial infection is, is a problem that we didn't think we had for, for now since the discovery of antibiotics is becoming uh, more and more pressing. Uh, so we know uh, very much that the diversity of the bacteria, so the pathogens, uh, is what drives potential 
actually resistance, meaning that uh, the, the, the bacteria evolve to escape uh, uh, the mechanism that antibiotics put in place to kill them. Uh, but we also know that the, the genetics of humans also uh, you know, affects the way you interact with, with your pathogens and potentially are able to protect yourself. So a lot of the work in trying to discover uh, uh, new uh, um, antibiotics doesn't really happen in humans, but really happens in using DNA sequencing to understand the diversity and the mechanism uh, of, of, of uh, biological function, but also of spread uh, of, uh, of bacteria and, uh, and other uh, microbes. Um, so um, I must say that uh, uh, our understanding of infection uh, genomics in humans is not as advanced as for any other common diseases, but it's really is understanding the bacteria that is the primary driver. Um, there's two questions here. And one. Oh, is it, where are the microphones? Hi. Thank you for your talk. It's really informative. My question revolves around uh, the issue of rheumatoid arthritis, which I noticed on your graphs on the screen a couple mm. of times. Yeah. Could you, um, you know, elucidate a little more on the role of genetics in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis in an aging society? <laughs> yes, uh, thank you. I, I'm, again, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in a lot of things. But uh, um, so um, RA, like many other diseases, has been studied quite extensively. And what is characteristic of RA and of many autoimmune diseases, so-called autoimmune diseases, so these are uh, diseases like celiac disease, uh, uh, immune uh, IBD and Crohn's disease, uh, uh, type 1 diabetes, uh, is that they share a lot of genetics. So uh, in fact, in, in many cases, they tend to be comorbid. So there's a lot of work. We have now identified hundreds of genetic variants in the genome that uh, are affecting your risk of uh, having rheumatoid arthritis or any of the other diseases. Uh, but in many, many cases, we still don't understand the biology underneath. So we are uh, trying to uh, develop uh, other types of approaches. I haven't talked about this, but there's a lot of other type of uh, DNA-based or, or sequencing-based technologies that goes uh, to really understand how these genetic variants act. And so, for instance, uh, some of the experiments that people are trying to do is to uh, isolate immune cells from people that are healthy and people that have uh, RA or other disease, uh, and they grow them in a dish and trying to understand what are the differences. And this is because these differences are pointing us to what happens in the biology and the underpinning the genetics. And so they could take, for instance, cells from uh, uh, people that are healthy but uh, have different types of these genetic variants and, and put stimuli, so chemicals that mimic the effect of endogenous stimuli and see how the different uh, types of cells respond uh, and change with each other. So, um, so I, I don't know if I answer your question, but you know there's hundreds of genetic uh, predisposing factors. You can expect uh, a similar contribution to what I described before. Uh, a lot of biology that still needs to be done to understand. And uh, uh, questions here in the front. And I, I don't know if you're. Yeah. Thank you. Um, would you mind explaining a little bit more about the um, issue associated with during pregnancy that you alluded to? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, the, again, the example I wanted to show is, is that uh, I, we can often think of some environments like smoking, you know, like some nurture, if you want, what we put into nurtures like smoking and diet and exercise. But we often don't realize there are actually biological processes, endogenous processes that also provide 
a kind of an environment you know, that, uh, on which diseases act. So in the case of pregnancy, the, the reference was that uh, uh, it has been observed now for a long time that pregnant women that are have an autoimmune disease often see a suppression of the symptoms uh, of, uh, of the uh, immune disease during the pregnancy. And then after the pregnancy, the symptoms go back to being what they were before. And so this suggests that pregnancy acts, uh, has some biological effect that suppresses the manifestation of this immune disease um, uh, in pregnant women. We don't know exactly how this happens, but there's a lot of work now happening. My colleagues, as also the Sanger Institute, that are studying uh, pregnant women and study the immunity and the interface of the mother's body with the children's body in the placenta barrier uh, to understand what triggers the suppression of immunity. So uh, this is just to say that there are a lot of things that we might not know about yet and we haven't measured, but we've been learning a lot but thanks to the information that we're gathering now. There was a question here. Hi, I was wondering, I'm at the back here. Okay, okay, Hi. sorry. Hi. Um, I was wondering yeah. if you could speak a bit more about the role of companies such as 23andMe and their potential impact on, on healthcare. Yes. Um. <laughs> okay, so um, I've done 23andMe. I really enjoy doing it. Um, uh, it's fun. Uh, so I think that they, they are potentially a, a hugely important role. So just to give you an example, uh, I'm pretty healthy, but I have a, a condition called the restless leg syndrome. So at night, my legs cramp up and become really painful. It becomes quite difficult to sit down at a theater, for instance. So I, I, I part as part of my uh, you know, doing 23andMe, I, I, I filled out a questionnaire and I told uh, 23andMe that I do have this condition. Um, and actually, I haven't been to the doctor. It's just self-reported. And then when uh, I was collaborating with, with some, uh, some scientists and they were studying restless syndrome, and they went and approached 23andMe and asked, can you give me the genetic, uh, the, the association between the genetics and restless leg syndrome? And so this led to the discovery of some of the genetic uh, predisposing variants. And so I am an author on the same paper that uses my data as a case. <laughs> so this is pretty cool. Um, and so, you know, th this is really exemplifies the power of, of, of you know, extending genetics to a really large uh, population sample. So because obviously in this case, I didn't go to the doctor, I didn't get diagnosis, uh, but really uh, the self-report in this case works really well. So we're really trying very, very, very hard to interface with com companies like this to uh, empower our association studies. There are barriers, and obviously there are economical barriers, but I think there's, uh, you know, there's an increase in realization that this data is very powerful and should be made uh, accessible. With respect to, instead, the, the, if you want the more like the disease, the health reporting of companies, as I said, this is very difficult. And so we've been really vocal in trying to make sure that people really understand uh, what genetics is telling them before, for instance, thinking that they are about to die of a heart attack and go to the doctor when this is really not the case. And I think uh, 23andMe and other companies have been, you know, and this again is a role of the, our society society and regulatory community to make sure that they uh, put in place barrier, and this was the case with 23andMe and FDA reporting, uh, that so that people really understand uh, what they are signing up for and what it all means. Yeah. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. I was, I was going to ask you what your thoughts were on the conflict of interest between the profit, mo profit motive at Big Pharma and the integrity of the research process. Uh, I think 
Okay, uh, so um, I, we work with a lot of pharma companies. I think the, the, the pharma, you know, I don't know, I haven't been around for very long, but the, the, uh, the, the pharma companies are becoming much more aligned to the way we do research now. So they are funding big studies. Uh, and, uh, and, and part of our requirement for carrying out the studies on behalf of pharma companies is that we want to have complete academic freedom. And that means complete academic freedom to share the data, to publish the data in absolutely open ways. So this is a so-called pre-competitive model where really uh, pharma signs up to working with us and potentially funding some of the uh, work but without in any way constraining uh, access to information. And I think this has come from the realization by pharma that indeed this is the right way, the right way. much more progress is, is done in this way. Uh, and this is indeed extending into now organization have been uh, uh, put together that are through equal partnership of pharma companies and, and, and research institutions. Um, so I think, you know, uh, overall, you know, our interest is that we are, uh, you know, we, we continue to uphold to the same standard of ethics and, uh, and, uh, and, and we continue to share uh, information as freely uh, as we would have done uh, in different settings. Uh, so uh, at the Sanger Institute where I work, we have a strong ethos of uh, not only the results of our study, but actually all the data that we produce in the course of the study is put out publicly. And this is both an, an issue of transparency, but also an issue uh, of uh, you know, making sure that more brains go to work on the same data and the progress happens. And even as a pharma that signs up to work on this model agree that the data is public, publicly shared. Uh, a question there? Or? Oh yeah, sorry. You are. Do you have a microphone? Or? Thank you for the excellent talk. It's been very enjoyable. I'm, I'm not sure, though, that it can, within the time that's available, give an idea of how complex, how hard it is to tease out signal from noise. Whether it's having to use the Japanese diaspora to work out uh, mitochondrial DNA variants and they're both beneficial and uh, negative effects from the same variant. Yeah. Uh, or whether it's working out something as like the Irish diaspora to work out the effects of the Irish, and I'll, I'll brief this to gigantism gene, its benefits and problems. I don't know if you shouldn't spend a little bit more time explaining the, the problems with that. Um, yeah, so I guess I try to give a sense for how difficult it is. Um, I think we'll run out of time. <laughs> uh, maybe we can talk in private. I don't know, maybe we should close it. Where are the organizers? Yeah. <laughs>